0: Mark Lano is an actor, producer, and talent manager, but he's perhaps best known for something else he did offstage, going into business with Bud Friedman to save the Hollywood Improv and help oversee its expansion as the first major comedy club chain. But there's a lot more to Lano's story, from his job as a teenager at the legendary Pips in Brooklyn to the Improv Sketch Trio he performed in with his wife and Henry Winkler, which led him to Bud in the first place. From his own starring turn on TV in the 1970s to organizing the strike against the Comedy Store in the late 1970s to his extended family with Claudia Lanao and Michael Rappaport, to executive producing multiple specials and projects for Lewis Black, to seeing comedy through the 1980s boom, the bust of the 90s, and now the rebirth and boom of the 21st century. As we prepare to look back at 1970s Los Angeles comedy through Showtime's adaptation of the book, I'm Dying Up Here, who better than someone who lived through it to tell us what is next for comedy today and why he still wants to be a part of that? So let's get to it! He, we're Welcome to episode two of <laughs> My Adventures with Mark Lano. No,
1: La No la, Lano.
0: Mark uh, Lano. Lano. No, nobody, nobody, nobody knows. That, right? Nobody knows Mark Lano. Very few. Oh, my wife barely knows me. Why is that? Is it because uh, Bud Friedman looms so large that people whoa, don't whoa, get to whoa, know whoa, Mark whoa, Lano? Whoa,
1: whoa, whoa, whoa! whoa. <laughs> Let's not go to looms so large. <laughs> he has uh, publicity needs. Mm. Let's put it that way.
0: Is that? Is that well? That's not really unique to him because Jamie Masada. Oh no, no, no just, <laughs> just down the street right, from you.
1: Bud doesn't hold the candle to that.
0: <laughs> All right, so let's let's back up. Um, okay, I I had the the, uh, the honor the luxury of sitting down with you in the beginning of March at your. Corporate HQ at the For Improv. For a kid from
1: Brighton Beach, Coney Island, someone says luxury of sitting down <laughs> with you. I'm already afraid <laughs> to proceed.
0: At the Improv on Melrose, the Hollywood Improv. And now uh, we're here in uh, my studio, Showbrew Studios in the East Village, Alphabet City.
1: I used to live yeah. around the corner on 5th between A and B. 519, S- I think.
0: So what is uh, what's it like walking around... Alphabet City now compared to well, what it was like all, as a kid. Well, first of
1: all, it's cleaner. Mm-hmm. Way cleaner. When uh, I moved out, our my friend's uh, father drove us. Mm-hmm. And the look on his face when he dropped us off in front of 519 was, are you fucking kidding? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even actually have to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, the garbage was, you know, piled in the streets and it was really, really messy. Today, there. are Le- Today's garbage collection day, mm-hmm. and all the trash is in plastic bags. It's neat on the sidewalk, you know, no problem. And I was walking down the street, actually going, "Wow, this is a lot different than it was <laughs> 40, 45, 55 years ago." Yeah. 55 years ago. I don't look it, huh?
0: Well, people don't even call this this part of town Alphabet City anymore. It's the East Village. Yeah, it's just part of the East Village. So that- Right, that tells you how.
1: And Tompkins far Square Park went. is clean,
0: right? Wasn't it a haven for? Oh, come on, addicts and...
1: needle park. Yeah. Really? Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, did you, <laughs> growing up, amid all that that mess and garbage and drugs, and did you? Were you dreaming of a career in show business even From the that? day
1: I was born? Seriously, I uh, when I okay, so I was. I didn't uh, wasn't born in the East Village. I mm-hmm. was born in uh, uh, South Brooklyn. Okay. And
0: um, right, Brighton as, Beach. Uh, Brighton mentioned. Beach,
1: right. And as soon as I could get out of Brighton Beach, I lied about my age and I went to a teenage class. You had to be thirteen, and I was twelve, and I lied. I got. On, I would go on the train every Saturday morning. Uh, Ed Moorehouse was the teacher's name, and they accepted me. I, they didn't check a birth certificate or anything. <laughs> And I started to go to right. uh, to uh, school, to acting school, on my own, mm-hmm. at 12.
0: And um, What did your parents think of this?
1: I come from a very dysfunctional family, so mm-hmm. my parents, my father well, that was that explains gone. why you're in comedy. Correct. So my father was gone, and my mother was nuts. <laughs> no, my mother was sick, and mm-hmm. she was in the hospital for uh, like nine years. And so there really weren't that many parents around to, okay. to supervise. But... I I would they were I lived with my father's parents, so though my grandparents brought me up, and um, seemed nice to them. The only uh, thing they would ask is, uh, "Can you make a living when you get older?" And I would say, uh, "Yeah, I'm going to be a star." <laughs>
0: <laughs> what did you have to do until then? Did you have uh,
1: I, I did. jobs
0: or? Oh, are you
1: kidding? Yes. I uh, I started as a short. I started as a soda jerk at like 13, 14. Mm-hmm. Um, short order cook, busboy, waiter, counterman, manager of Pip's nightclub in Sheep'shead Bay.
0: Is that uh, is that where the comedy bug first uh, with Pip's?
1: Well, to be stand-up, to be a stand-up, mm-hmm. yes, in in Pip's because the owner, George Schultz, um, was Best friends with Rodney Dangerfield. He was actually the man who came up with the phrase, I don't get no respect. And that's the reason that they stopped talking after like a 60-year friendship. Uh, Rodney was being interviewed at at some point. And uh, (laughs) where'd you come up with that line? And and, uh, Rodney said... And George was in the waiting room. (laughs) And Rodney said, oh, you know, it was just... uh, we were just sitting around one day, you know, we would, I was talking to my friend Joe and I, it just came out, you know, it just came out. That's how it happened. And George said, hey, what, are you kidding? Yeah. And they stopped talking. Mm. Yeah. But that was a great room because uh, Joan Rivers, Lenny would stop in every once in a while, Lenny Bruce.
0: What years was this? Oh boy. So I was uh, about 58, Okay, 59
1: yeah, something like 50, 60 maybe, in those years. Uh, Joan was, um, Edgar would stand in the back of the room. Mm-hmm. George lived above the candy store. He lived above the club. And uh, they would do a set, Joan would do a set, and she and Edgar would go upstairs, write, rewrite the set, come down and do a new set. Mm-hmm. For weeks, she would start, you know, I think we worked Thursday to Sunday, And she would do it every night, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Come back next week, Thursday, Friday. And in like uh, two, three months she had a she had an act. She had to change the act. And was
0: was Pips a showcase club, as it were, where people were doing fifteen minute sets or what was No, no, it was a
1: three act room. Okay. But because it was George, people would come out and break in new material. And it it was so far out in Brooklyn that it really didn't compete with any Sheepshead Bay, right literally across the street from Lundy's. We were, in, we were in a building that was designed in the same fashion Lundy's was. Mm-hmm. And in case you don't know what Lundy's is, it was the biggest restaurant in the world. 2,500 people seated every Friday, Saturday <laughs> night. Can you imagine that?
0: And how did you find your way over to Pips?
1: Uh, my friend uh, Phil Messina, uh, who is a director uh, and a writer, mm-hmm. um, got a job, and I had just... Uh, come back from stock or something yeah i i was out on the road i was like 16 17 and he's you know and i was looking for some work and he said well why don't you come over to pips with me and uh <laughs> okay so i walk into the club right it's like a saturday afternoon maybe it's three in the afternoon and there's no nobody's there so i walk into the kitchen uh hello anybody here <laughs> um Rita, the short order cook was mm-hmm. who i was going to speak to And I noticed that around all of the equipment, there are milk boxes. There's a milk box in front of the stove. There's a milk box in front of the sink. But there's nobody there. What an odd reality. So I opened the the freezer, you know, walk-in refrigerator door, and there's nobody in front of me. And I hear, can I help you? (laughs) And I look down, and Rita was a legitimate short-order cook. (laughs) Who happened to be a midget. She was a practical nurse, mm-hmm. and she was George's best friend, and she ran the room. And uh, she gave me the job, because I didn't uh, disparage her. <laughs> I didn't look down on her. I tried to,
0: but I didn't. And what, would, what, what did you thought about comedy before the Pips experience?
1: I never um, thought of uh, stand-up as a profession. I mean, I liked it, and I knew a lot of acts. Mm-hmm. I was an actor. Uh,
0: Right, the you year, were taking classes, you were in summer stock? I, I and. was in
1: stock. I, you know, I was a dancer also. I, mm-hmm. I danced Harry Beaton in Brigadoon, uh, Enoch Snow Jr. in Carousel. Um, that's what I did, uh, you know. You go and you get in a show and you go uh-huh. on the road and whatever. And then this opened up. I went, oh, this is great. And, uh, We've, my wife and I, this is later now, right. I just skipped a few minutes. Uh, um, you got married at 16? Yeah, not only that, I had seven children. It was, um, And we started a, an improv group, mm-hmm. and it whittled down because we were lazy. We wouldn't rebook people. We had like eight people, then we had seven, mm-hmm. then we had five, and then we had three. And at one point, Henry Winkler was the third person.
0: So it was you, your wife, and Henry, and Henry
1: Winkler. And then uh, Henry went to California, mm-hmm. but we were New York actors, and we right. wouldn't go. Henry became the Fonz, and we kept doing the act, and we replaced Henry with uh, Jeff Lampert, and uh, we opened for Maynard Ferguson, we opened for Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons, and we worked the East, you know,
0: mostly the East. But Coast. you were doing improv, not sketch.
1: It was improv sketch with a little standup. Okay. But that was the first time we actually went into clubs mm-hmm. and worked clubs. Grandma Minnie's, you know, the bottom line. Um, <laughs> no,
0: I don't think any of them are still open. But Now, there wasn't a lot of, at that time, there was barely any improv outside of Second City. Second Inch City, right. In uh, the committee in San Francisco, right? Correct.
1: Nichols and May did had done Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, no, we did it. And we could. Turned it into an act, basically. Right. And we worked for years, like three or four
0: years doing that. How did you go from that to stand-up then?
1: Well, I never did stand-up. Okay. Okay. My wife did stand-up. She went all the way to The Tonight Show with Carson. Um, but I got, okay, so from the improv group, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, my wife and I, one of our very close friends was Madeline Kahn. Who is doing Young Frankenstein in Hollywood? And
0: so we're in the early seventies. We're in
1: the early seventies, and uh, my agent in New York says, "Oh, you, why don't you go out with Madeline? Mm-hmm. And I'll send you up. I have another. I have an agent I work with. If you get a job, it'll pay for the vacation." Oh, great idea! I go out. Oh, here comes the Joe Rivers thing. So I go out, and the first job. I go up for Mm -hmm. is a sitcom uh, entitled Husbands, Wives, and Lovers. I walk in, it's written by Joan Rivers and Hal Dresner, (laughs) and Joan is sitting there. Mm -hmm. She looks up, and she goes, (laughs) it was such a disparate reality, she goes, Mark? (laughs) Joan, yeah. What what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm auditioning for you. Are you good? (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm pretty good. I've been working at it Mm -hmm. for about four. All right, let's do it. Okay, so I read the scene. Mm -hmm. I walk into the hall. She runs after me. She goes, you got the job, and she runs back. (laughs) So I call the agent. Okay, Mm -hmm. I I have this job. (laughs) He says, fine. Now the agent goes, I have a few more I'd like you to go up on. I go up to uh, Thank God It's Friday, a movie, a movie. I get that. I get another one called uh, Spencer's Pilot. And I started working, obviously, immediately. Right. And I worked for the next four years. That's,
0: that's living the Hollywood dream. That you is go out there and you dream. immediately get work. And okay, so here's. <laughs> you're on TV, you're in a movie.
1: Okay, so I'm in Husbands, Wives, and Lovers, right. and it's a story about. It's an hour sitcom.
0: It was kind of like Love American Style. Right? Well, I hang mean, on, okay. hang on. Sorry. So it's. It, <laughs> I'll let it, you know, tell it, the story. It's.
1: Uh, it's an hour sitcom. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's really very good, mm-hmm. and we do decently. You know, we had a like a nineteen rating, like nineteen million people watched us every right. week or something. But the um, the cutoff point at that time was twenty. <laughs> So they dropped us. They literally, they dropped us. Yeah,
0: (laughs) The world of three television
1: stations. Correct. If you got 19 million people now, they would be giving you blowjobs. Are you kidding? Unbelievable. So, all right. We're now, we go a few years later. Mm -hmm. I'm living in Hollywood because we had to move out for the series, for the TV show. My agent says, uh, Claudia, my stepdaughter, you know, she's 15 now. Mm -hmm. It's just the time... If she wants to be an actress, maybe she should start auditioning. You know, there's not that much competition. Oh, okay. But now my wife and I talk about this, mm-hmm. and we go, gee, you know, a 15 year old girl gets right. rejected constantly. But she actually went around with us when we were the act, and she would run the lights. She would give the grips, light cues, blackout, you know. Mm-hmm. They'd look at her like, you know, 15 or 13 year old. Okay. So we sit her down, and we say, honey. You know, the, the Mike would like to send you out, but mm-hmm. you're going to be rejected, but it's not you. You know, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean you're not a pretty girl. It doesn't, you know, it's not you. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I'd like to do that. <laughs> she gets the first three shows. <laughs> the third one is um, Knott's Landing, and she'd spent the next seven years as Michelle Lee's daughter on <laughs> Knott's Landing. The first one was Mary Tyler Moore's niece, a runaway who wanted to be in show business. It was a musical. I, don't, I think maybe it was called the Mary Tyler Moore Hour, or something like that. But that didn't run at all. Mm-hmm. She then got another one pretty quickly, got rejected two or three times, and then got Knots Landing. So but not
0: here- not the Mary. Show show that had uh, Michael Keaton and Letterman. No, 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 no. This came and went.
1: But here's the... um, Okay, I had a thread there. I had a thread. Um, Oh, yes. So how does um, Knott's Landing fit in with my husband's wives and lovers? Jacobson, the man who developed... Knott's Landing, Mm -hmm. had seen Husbands, Wives and Lovers and said to himself, oh, that shouldn't be a sitcom, that should be an evening soap opera. Ah. And he creates Knott's Landing. And Knott's Landing is one of the reasons I stopped working (laughs) as an actor in television because when I first got to Hollywood, ethnics were in. You know, they Mm -hmm. were... a lot of the Norman Lear shows, the Gary Marshall shows, a lot of you know New York kids street right. kids, and so when I got there, it was the tail end, and we started to work all the time mm-hmm. Knott's landing gets on, but the Dallas or uh, what was the
0: Falcon Crest was uh, the other
1: one? I don't remember the first one. So my uh, wife, Dallas was the big one. Dallas was the big one. They were all pretty yeah, big, yeah, yeah, but right. they stopped. All the ethnic's dropped off. Uh-huh. So my wife wants me to write a memoir. Mm-hmm. The reason uh, I'm in the nightclub business, there are no Jews on Dynasty, <laughs> <laughs> and that's basically a fact.
0: Ah. Well, and now and now Claudia is is behind the scenes.
1: Now Claudia is a very very yeah. <laughs> I want her career. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, your career is not too bad. No, not at all. So tell me then about the first time you met Bud.
1: Oh, it was in that group. So we, uh, it was called the... Off the Wall, the improv group.
0: When you were a trio or we larger? Were, we
1: were already a trio. Okay. Uh, it was too many people. Mm-hmm. Maybe the first, no, it, we were only three. What happened was um, we needed a place to work and we lived in the village But uh, at this point, not on the east side. We lived in the West Village. And I'm walking down 7th Avenue, and there's a place called the Riviera Cafe in the corner of uh, uh, um, Christopher Street and 7th Avenue. And they have this incredible plate glass window. It opens, but it's a storeroom. I look at it, and I go, that would make a great theater. So I go in. A guy named Andy Menchel is the manager. I go, "Um, excuse me. What are you doing with that room? He goes, uh, it's a storeroom. What what do you want to wear? It's a storeroom. Well, I go, how would you like to have a show in there? You don't have to pay us anything. Um, You know, give us hamburgers and whatever, but we'll take the door, Mm -hmm. and you'll get the drinks and the food. And we open a show, and we started the show by standing across the street, across 7th Avenue... And singing New York, New York, it's a wonderful town. New York, New York. Okay. And we would walk across, climb in through the window, mm-hmm. do the show. At the end of the show, we'd climb out. Mm-hmm. We had a cab waiting for us. We'd get in a cab and drive away. So that was the show.
0: <laughs> right. So it didn't, it looked like you were just showing up to perform for these people who happened and, to be there.
1: That's right. And it wound. <laughs> we ran for two or three years. Mm-hmm. And Chris Albrecht, Bud had moved to New York, uh, to Los Angeles. Chris Albrecht had heard about us, had come down to see us, I assume. I don't, I'm not. So he
0: was sure. running the New York Improv He was running. Point. He
1: was a partner with Bud mm-hmm. in the New York Improv. And Bud went to L.A. to open Melrose. He stayed in New York to run uh, 44th Street. And he invited us to come up and audition. We got off the stage and he said, Do you want to come in every night? Come in every night. So we gave up downtown, mm-hmm. and at one point after we started to work there, Bud came in, saw the act, which is another funny story. I used to do a, like an animal transformation, and I would climb up on the back of seats and stuff and mm-hmm. swing through the, you know, It's
0: crazy. It, it's improv comedy, sketch, Cor- yeah. Correct.
1: And I did that the night mm-hmm. Bud came to see us, and I'm hanging from the light bars, and Bud had hung the light bars when he first opened the club. And he was screaming at Chris,
0: "The kids are gonna break my
1: my lights, my, you know." So it didn't really matter. We so we that's how I met Bud. Okay. And then at one point, uh, at one point in when I was in Hollywood, I was staying with my aunt. This is before the series actually took off. It was after the, after the, uh, the uh, pilot. But before it really got picked right. up, so I was there for a couple of weeks, maybe a month. And my uncle, he says, uh, You're an actor? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. He goes, uh, You make a living? <laughs> yes, I make a living. Well, you know, the, uh, the best thing is not to be an actor. <laughs> Herman, what is the best thing? The best thing is to own the room. Mm-hmm. Own the room? Had never thought of owning a room. What do you mean? You own the nightclub. You take the money, you know, let the other schmucks uh, do the stuff on stage. It, it, that's where the steady money is, you know. That's the steady money. Okay. Put <laughs> it in the back of my head. Right. And when knots um, Landing, <laughs> when the Dynasty came right. on the air and I started to lose work, Bud wasn't doing that greatly um, as far as a club. You know, he was really starting to flounder.
0: Well, was this during that whole period of the strike...
1: No, 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 no. After the strike. After the strike. strike. I became a partner in 1979. Mm -hmm. uh, Actually, September, so it was, you know, pretty late into 79. Okay. Um, And uh, so, I had a lot of money. I had series, the TV money, you know. It was money that I had never seen before in my life. And uh, Bud wasn't doing very well. And Bud had gotten divorced. And given the club in New York to his ex-wife. So he had the Melrose Club. Silver had the New York Club. And she went to run it with Chris. And Chris couldn't deal with Silver. <laughs> and one day, there's a knock on my door. And it's Chris Albrecht. Hey, what's, what are you doing here? He goes, well, blah, blah. And there's a you know, I, I can't deal with uh, Silver. I can't mm-hmm. run it. Why don't we, um, you and I, partner up and buy Bud out? He wants to sell. He's not doing very well. And we began a negotiation with Bud, and it went on forever. Absolutely went on forever. One day I'm sitting at the bar, and this is like six, seven months later, literally. And he leans over. He goes, you know what? I don't really want to sell. Really? <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a shock. He says, but I do need a partner. hmm and I've had Chris as my partner already. I'd like to have you as my partner. Well, let me talk to Chris about this. You know, I gave my word, blah, blah, blah. And then Chris said, nah, if you want to do it, do it. And so that's how I, I bought into Save Buds. Uh,
0: what, yes. made, what made Chris think that you would be up for ownership oh, we, we
1: were friends. We were friends and we talked about the business and how the business. I mean, you know, over we worked two years, three mm-hmm. years in, in New York. And, uh, you know, he knew that I, w- I put the act together. I kind of managed, didn't manage it, but, you know, I went out and hustled the jobs. Mm-hmm. And so there was a, a an essence of economic reality
0: to my life. That you knew the business part of show business. Right.
1: And so, and you know, and we were friends and we talked. And so it didn't come out of nowhere. But, okay. it, you know, it was a, a new concept, but it didn't come out of
0: nowhere. Right. Well, you know, when we were talking before uh you we were reminiscing about you know evening at the improv and mm-hmm. and annie and and you were saying that the improv wasn't a chain until no. after the show
1: no it wasn't anything it it was a failing business you know right to be honest it was it was too because bud opened uh, Melrose and uh forty fourth street was still running mm-hmm. but once silver took over uh melrose uh took over forty fourth street it was really one one business, and very quickly, she bankrupted uh, New York. Uh, she closed New York, maybe it was a year, maybe two. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was two. Then she opened up for a brief stint on 34th Street in the back of a seafood restaurant. They had another room, and then it was gone. Uh, so it was a single club on Melrose Avenue, and Bud needed an needed apartment, mm-hmm. and it was me. Um, um, and obviously because Silver went out and Chris left, so that happened just before I became a partner. And uh, I changed the concept of the club, the outside of the club, the bar. The, uh, the comics were still the comics, but we had singers then. It was, you know, comic singer, comic singer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we alternated.
0: Still had that kind of ca- cabaret vibe.
1: It was a cabaret vibe because the original club was not a comedy club.
0: The, right, original, the original club was
1: The it. original club, Bud opened it uh, for Broadway uh, performers who wanted to do something after work.
0: Right, the after party. The after place.
1: party. And you would come and you'd buy coffee. He had no Ooh. liquor. Um, he would buy his food at Smilers and he wondered why he wasn't making money. <laughs> Smilers is like Seven Eleven, if you don't know. Oh, yeah, we're in New York now. Yeah, yeah you know what a Smilers smile Is Smilers still open?
0: Not that I'm aware of.
1: Oh, wow. It was a chain of um, mm-hmm. bodegas, you know, very uh, expensive grocery stores.
0: Okay. So he
1: would go out before the, he opened the room and he'd buy, you know, chocolate cake, uh, mm-hmm. muffins, <laughs> whatever, and then he would sell it, you know.
0: Um, so your, your idea was to change the Melrose Club.
1: And it happened the first night I was there. And oh, the first night I was there, I knew I had an ego problem with Bud. I'm standing there. I just paid more money than I had ever paid in my life for anything. Mm-hmm. And he, his friend comes in, and he goes, I don't remember the guy's name, Hey, Jackie, I'd like you to meet my new manager, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so Jackie walks away, go, but uh, I'm not your manager. I'm your partner. Uh so, and okay, but what happened was a lot of the comics came in because I had been not a comic but an act in New York, right. and the kids the the women, the men who came from New York and hung out at the club were hanging out and it was and I got the sense, you know this is like a party, so I ran out this is night one, mm-hmm. and I bought like eight pounds of chocolate. Hershey's Chocolate Kisses. And I went into the back and mm-hmm. I got a silver tray and I began handing out candy and making it a party. Mm-hmm. And we turned on a radio and put on 50s rock music and it was a party. And then every night I did that. I became relatively famous in Hollywood. I was the candy man and I would every night, a couple of times, you know, three, four times a mm-hmm. night. I'd hand out candy, and we'd have a party, and then I started to take the chairs, tables and chairs, off the, uh, the restaurant area mm-hmm. after 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and dance, and it was dancing, and our biggest grossing nights, we didn't charge to come in, were the dancing nights, Sunday, Sundays and Mondays, believe it or not, people, two, three hundred people lined up outside to get in the room, Yeah. And from there... Talk about happy
0: days. <laughs> correct. And then,
1: uh, then the evening at the improv went on the air.
0: That was in the early
1: 80s. And that was in the early 80s. And uh, there was a, a comic, Mark Anderson, who was you know, independently wealthy, and he wanted to open another club. And he asked if he could have a license, and we gave him a license. And that was the first one. It was in Pacific Beach. And from there on, then other people came to us, and it was kind of a haphazard. It wasn't really a planned reality; it really just happened. And then it had to be organized,
0: right? Because you need quality control if it's that, an improv. Well, that's correct. People think an improv is going to be an improv,
1: right? And that's
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you have you watched the movie The Founder about uh, just oh no I didn't about, um, I want to see that Michael yet. Keaton as Ray Kroc right yes right. Because I, I wonder how much you and Bud were, kind of in the weeds about making sure that the improvs all were well, okay. up, to, well up to snuff of the Melrose. Well, hmm. Yeah,
1: well, uh, <laughs> we uh, we are famous for our arguments <laughs> and our arguments, and I don't know why, mm-hmm. because I didn't have any formal training. I barely went to college. I didn't even. I did not finish college, and I did go to a business school, which is another funny story. Um. I, I went for uh, six months, you know, uh, night school because I was in shows and blah, 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 blah. And I also didn't have the greatest of uh, marks getting out of high school. But I kept saying, no, we need to do this. And Bud would say, what do you got to do that for? No, no, you know. So there was no real organization. And we would, there were weeks we wouldn't talk to each other. Because he had, I I was so naive that when I, you know, I just gave him this money and he had all 100% control. And he, if we had a conflicting decision, he made the final decision and I really had no legal power to change it. So we would fight and then we wouldn't talk and then we would argue and then we wouldn't talk. So that was our relationship.
0: Did that, did that influence your decision to go into also talent management?
1: Well, that was my wife. My wife, my wife came out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Her husband had TV series and was starring in movies. Her daughter was on Knotts Landing, and she, who had a very, very, very successful career in in, uh, commercials, because in New York, she was a perfect Midwestern woman. In Hollywood, she was a Jew from New York. (laughs) It was quite a different reality. So she had to find something to do, Mm -hmm. because she's not the type of woman, (laughs) if you met my wife, you would fully understand this who sits around the house and is a homemaker. She is definitely a homemaker. She's a great cook, but you wouldn't consider her a homemaker. So she picked herself up and she began to do stand-up. And she was really good at it and went on the road, you know, and got to Carson, mm-hmm. you know, in The Tonight Show. But it's really hard for a woman. It was much harder then. You know, maybe there were a handful of women. Now the women, you know, permeate the business. It's not that big a deal. But it was really tough, and it was being away from the family. It was hard. And she really, when she got on Carson, she didn't feel she scored big enough. I think it was more psychological than real. Mm -hmm. And she got, she felt, well, I, I really should find something better to do. And she is a help. She's a helpmate. She likes to help people. And so she started to um, talk to people about managing and handling them. She'd ask me business questions and st- so on, but it was really her business. And okay. then I became her partner. seems I've become everybody's partner. Right. Yes. <laughs>
0: is that, and then is she, that in your DNA? To, I guess uh, so. Uh,
1: and then she uh, managed some pretty big comics and really took them from, who are they, to... Major stars
0: right, I mean you were telling me about Lewis Black,
1: yes Lewis Black, who
0: is one of the, like the famous examples, Rodney being another one of people who tried to become successful early and then didn't but then had right. this second second chance later in, in middle age right
1: and there are you know there are many reasons why people don't make it at one point and make it at another point, but yes, and also um, Michael Rappaport, that's another I have this fascinating a reality. Okay. So my wife was obviously married to someone else before mm-hmm. me. And her first husband, David Rappaport, is the father of my stepdaughter and Michael Rappaport. And Michael Rappaport was a rebellious, funny kid and had trouble in school. And he came out to.
0: I'm having a hard time picturing Michael Rappaport being rebellious, but okay, yes, let's... I understand that. <laughs> I fully understand
1: that because he's so ordered, his life is so neat.
0: Yeah, he sneezed on me once; I still remember.
1: <laughs> and uh, he came out to mm-hmm. visit his half sister. Mm-hmm. Um, liked it, <laughs> and asked if he could live with us. And being the hippies we are, mm-hmm. were why mm-hmm. not? So for high school, Michael Rappaport lived in our house all the way to – he didn't graduate of Fairfax, but he went to Fairfax High. Then he went back for like the last six months or eight months and
0: I don't know where he graduated. To keep his New York cred. Yeah, well, that's
1: right. <laughs> I don't think he has to worry about
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> um, have, you, have you gotten a chance to see any of the, the new Showtime series, I'm Dying Up Here? No, I know they just started about, screening some footage. But that's about – it's a reimagining of the the heady days of 1979 right. <laughs> Los Angeles comedy.
1: That's correct. But that comes from a book right. by Bill Nadelseeder about the um, – which is actually a great book. I, I was going to ask I think how, what, what you still, think of it. I think the book is excellent. It, it's not about – the. well, it is kind of about the time, but the book is about the strike. Right where the uh, comics went on strike. And uh, my wife was the first president of the uh, comics union. And I was, uh, I was a helpful organizer. Again, that was before... That was right was,
0: before you became a partner with Bud. Right.
1: I didn't even... Was, that was the point at which I never thought of becoming a nightclub. Owner. Mm-hmm. I was still an actor. But I had a lot of... My mom was a union organizer, so were my grandparents, you know. So I knew a lot about how to run a strike... And I was kind of the helpmate to uh, organize a seven-week, 24-hour-a-day strike of comics in front <laughs> of the comedy store. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Yes, but we did do that.
0: I can't imagine comedians going on strike now, even though there's pr- probably plenty of people who would want to go on strike. Well, I'm there's sure there's no are. organization.
1: That's correct. To organize them
0: mm-hmm. was
1: nuts. Yeah. However, it, Mitzi, is it like herding
0: cats, or it's
1: like herding cats? But Mitzi was a great help mm-hmm. because
0: <laughs> as a villain, or
1: as a villain, she she did it. Mm-hmm. Here, so okay, so is this
0: kind of like the Trump thing where like people once you have someone to to well, rally that, against, it's like oh, okay. she
1: organized it for us. I swear <laughs> to God, it, it, it was so stupid. We mm-hmm. all stood there and went, "Is this really happening?" So. These ten, ten comics, mm-hmm. but big comics. You know, Tom Drees and La- uh, Letterman, names, major, major players went to her. She had opened the Sands in Vegas, and they said, "Look, Mitzi," and oh, she had okay, she had <laughs> opened the m- main room mm-hmm. and the big room, the old Ceros. And a little room upstairs for women called the Belly Room. So right. she had three rooms on Sunset Boulevard. She now opens the Sands in Vegas, making about 100000 a week, some fucking ridiculous amount of money. Okay. For
0: 1977. So. For
1: 76, 70, 77, that's yeah. correct. And the comics are getting no money. They're not being paid. They're being paid in Vegas, but not... Mm-hmm.
0: Are they getting even like free beer or food or...
1: Zippo, zippo, I mean, you could get a drink, you know, but mm-hmm. she had to give it to you. It was like, you know, okay. <laughs> so they go to her and they say, mm-hmm. Mitzi, this is, come on, this is unfair. She said, he's, they said, just give us like cab fare, 15 bucks. It's not a big deal. This is a college. I don't get, no, no, this is a college. I mm-hmm. give you opportunity. And now she calls a meeting. <laughs> of all the comics, Mm -hmm. and we're talking a 100. Now, there are a lot of people, okay? And she gets up and she said, there were 10 came to me the other day, and can you imagine? They asked to be paid. This is a college. I give you everything you want on the stage, but I can't really give you money. Meeting ends Mm -hmm. and 100 people... Were you at the meeting? I was at the meeting. 100 people get up Mm -hmm. and run to the nearest payphone. It's that long ago. (laughs) There were payphones to call Dreesen or Letterman, whoever Mm. they knew of those 10. Right. How can I help? I want the money. And 24 hours later, maybe 48 hours later, we uh, had a... Committee, mm-hmm. who went back and said, "No, you got to give it to you. You're gonna, we're going to strike," and no, you're not going to strike.
0: Okay, so instead of asking you a whole bunch of questions about the strike, um, I, I guess I should speak on, even though I don't perform and I haven't in a long time myself. I guess I should bring up this question on behalf of today's comedians. Okay, because what I hear or what I see on Facebook a lot is that the pay for feature acts and in openers is the same as it's been for 20 some some
1: places it's less. Yeah. They've cut it, sometimes they don't pay at all.
0: So what what should what should comedians do now?
1: Well, you know, I think it really depends on the size of the room and mm-hmm. I'm not saying this because I'm a, I'm a club owner Right. because I'm really not that involved
0: with the actual running of the Well, there's club. levities involved. Well, no, Levity uh, in some of the took over. Or- the,
1: yeah, but uh, we, I still uh, run um, Tahoe. Okay. But, uh, yeah, they run the other rooms. But they're um, owned and operated by separate people, mm-hmm. and people get paid. We're only talking about the showcase room, which would be on Melrose. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where people actually do break in acts. Right. So it really depends on what the room is functioning as if it's a three-act room, you should get paid. Right. That means people are coming in. There are not a lot of people on the stage. You're coming in to see whatever the feature or the headliner is, you know, maybe not the opener, but, and you should be paid. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about the showcase rooms, well, that depends on the size of the room. Can they make it? You right. know, you don't want to demand money from a room that's going to close if you demand money. I mean, the owner still has to make money too. So you really have to judge as to the situation. And yes, if the room is kicking ass and they're making a shitload of money, cab fare, 15 bucks, you know, is absolutely uh, should be
0: done. But for these working comedians who are on the road, you know, who – Maybe aren't headlines. You mean to the, just – The features. When they drop in? No, the features uh-huh. who are making the same or less than than the features did 20, 25 years ago. You're talking
1: about the features on the road? Yeah,
0: features on the road at the three-act rooms. Oh, in
1: the three-act rooms. That is really a function How of the they... owner. You have to deal with the owner. I mean, even in the improv, we do not have um, an overall um, – rule of the feature gets, uh, you know, $400, the headliner gets $2,000. No, that's not it.
0: It's negotiated per person.
1: But each room is owned by a different person. There are a couple of people who have two rooms or three rooms, but we don't, it's not monolithic. It's not like uh, everybody gets dictated from Melrose, that's not how it works. We're a licensing company. Mm-hmm. It's not a franchise, and even in the franchise situation, I don't think that would happen, where they would dictate uh, the head office would dictate the pay scale, because each area. I mean, we're as disparate an area. We're in San Diego, and we're in West Palm Beach, Florida. You know, we're in Texas. We're in um, Dallas, Addison, Texas, right. and and we're in. Um, uh, well, we used to be in Atlanta. Each area, the pay requirements and the pay scales are incredibly different. you know the, so it's it would be insanity for a single monolithic entity to decide. oh everybody gets two thousand right. dollars
0: really well i 'm not asking you to decide i 'm asking what should the comedians do
1: they have to really that really depends on their booker or their agent. To, to understand, well, first of all, in a three-act three, uh, three act room, mm-hmm. you should get paid. Right. That goes without saying. But, but exactly. it's just a matter of
0: making a living wage is more of the Yeah, the but that you
1: have to be able to manage that mm-hmm. for sure. You know, transportation, there are all kinds of perks that you could get. Right, do you to get make. the flight, do
0: you get lodging?
1: That's correct, and that is up to an individual and, you know, how much weight you have, right. how much the bill... Uh, the the uh, the purchase of the ticket depends on your name being on the bill. You know, it, it's it's not so. It's not like uh, you're a machinist. Machinist gets you know sixteen dollars, twenty dollars an hour, and you you're either at the bottom of the scale or the top of the scale. It doesn't work like that.
0: Well, you know, now that you know you came in at seventy nine as a partner, right? It right as comedy started to boom. You you've seen no.
1: Bo- well, Comedy didn't start to boom until the mid eighties. Right. That's when it really took off, eighty-two, three, something like
0: that. So you you've you've lasted through all of that. You've you've seen the bust. You've, you've seen, the, the, number, 90s you've seen 90s. the number of improvs very wild wi- wildly. <laughs> right. Uh the locations come and go. And now, you know, we've we've been in this new boom period for the last few years.
1: Right. I think it's just
0: the beginning, by the way. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. How does how does this in your perspective Compare.
1: Well, it's interesting because um, when Bud opened the room on Forty Fourth Street, there was no there was no industry. Then when I came along in seventy nine, it was just kind of the beginning of an industry. You had the store, you had the Improv, um, you had uh, Bob Fisher's place in uh, Pasadena, uh, the Ice Ice House. And, they uh, had the ice house and uh, and then there was comedy a, magic club, yeah in Hermosa Beach right. and there was a place called Igby's, which is long gone on Pico Boulevard, so there was the beginning of a, um, an expansion of the industry. Right. Then when we got on, um, evening at the Improv on A and E, not the first uh, fifty two. We we had a, a short run on ABC, I think, and it didn't pick up but on A&E it picked up so after we got to A&E it became an industry because every guy and that was part of the reason it then contracted every person who had a room and a light and a microphone thought they could run a comedy club and they would charge the same prices in the area cuz they would come into competition with us and you could go to the improv and see great comics or you can go to Joe's room and see horrendous (laughs) comics, same price. And they proliferated much more rapidly than we did. And guess what? People got pissed off. They went, they sat there for two hours, whatever, and it wasn't funny, and it wasn't good, and it wasn't clean, and it wasn't whatever it wasn't. And so the expansion really depleted the audience, and it got them tired. So by 1990-ish... So it ran about ten years. Then it started to contract. Now this is a different thing because right. people kind of know what a night cl- uh, comedy club really requires, and they can run it much, much more, much more proficiently.
0: Well, there are, the other difference is that people can see everything online too.
1: That's correct. So you better be good. <laughs> you better be good. Uh, online is a lot different than in person. Yeah, but, but
0: it is. Yeah, yeah. But it gives it. people impressions of what comedy is.
1: Correct. Because stand-up comedy, when we went on with Evening at the Improv, there were a lot of people who didn't even know it was a profession. Because
0: you know? they didn't have a club where they were.
1: They didn't, they never... If you went... weren't in
0: New York or L.A.
1: Correct. Maybe Vegas. Right. You know? And there wasn't any Atlantic City. I mean, very small. Right. right because
0: but... if you went to Vegas, you'd see a comedian open for a singer. Correct. Yeah.
1: Correct. Yeah. So it was a whole different reality. And now...
0: But you think it's still booming. You think there's still room for it to... Oh, without question. To go up from here. Without question. Okay. Because I I get in these debates a lot with people about whether we've already peaked and we're starting to contract. No, no.
1: (laughs) No, not even close. Now, that's not to say there won't be some contraction. That's Mm -hmm. different than what happened in 1990. Than the bust, right. Yeah, that was a bust. We went from 17 clubs to nine. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's more than 50%.
0: So what do you what do you make is of the, it more than fifty no, well, percent about, about about so um what do you make of the fact that uh you know all those comedy clubs come and go but in both Los Angeles and to a certain extent New York the people who started the clubs are still either they're around or their children mm-hmm. are running it. What does that mean? Well, the fact that you're still like you're still you're still at the. At Melrose, and why Jamie Masada is still running the roost at the Laugh Factory. And
1: yeah, so what? what do you,
0: Somebody I, from the Shore family. Well, it's, oh, yeah. definitely.
1: Uh, Paulie yeah. is uh, up at the club, at the uh, comedy store, for yeah. sure. Yeah, no. Um,
0: Does, so it doesn't surprise you in the least that...
1: No, it's, that a, it's a business. You some know, fo-
0: almost 40 years why later. Why did
1: Zuckerberg leave uh, his business? I mean, it's the, same, it's the same. Even though comedy has changed... Mm-hmm. And the topics have changed. The concept hasn't. So, if you know how to play the game, if you know how to run the room, there's no reason why at seventy uh, you can do what you did at fifty, at forty. Whatever, you know, I don't know how old people are when they mm-hmm. get in. You know, you, you can do this forever. All this right. is not weightlifting. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, most uh, people in the comedy business never lifted a weight. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, you get into comedy because it's uh, it pays better than a real job.
1: That is correct. Yeah. Oh,
0: but the pain is <laughs> definitely the reason it pays better. <laughs> well, there is a cost, yeah. So, um, what what would your what would your advice be? Like, if you know you're back here in, in Alphabet City, if you if you saw if you talked to a young teenager today who had the bug for show business, maybe inklings of comedy, what would what would you tell them about getting into the business? What would your well, first I advice be? Wouldn't,
1: I, I certainly wouldn't dissuade them. Um, I would first ask uh, how strong their emotional life is mm-hmm. because the um, amount of rejection in the beginning is monumental. No one gets on the stage unless you're a genius, and there aren't many of those. And is good. Even geniuses, you know, you have to find a voice. You have to find a way to communicate with an audience, um, and you're going to get rejected. You know, my wife has the great story about uh, her first out-of-town gig. She's in uh, in Texas, someplace, and maybe it's Dallas. Uh, not at an improv, by the way just uh, just mm-hmm. working, and. She bombs first night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. No, not a laugh. She is sitting at the bar, seriously depressed. (laughs) And the owner, Billy Bob, the guy's name was Billy Bob, okay. And he comes over. He goes, "Ma'am, what's the matter?" And she goes, "Billy, you you saw that? I died. Not a laugh." He goes, "Well, that's that's okay." You Think of it this way. You're a middle-aged Jewish woman from New York who's divorced and you're in Texas. You're lucky you're alive. (laughs) And she said, what? He said, it'll be fine by the end of the week. And then she found how to relax everybody with who she was Mm -hmm. and she was fine. She ran the week and no problem. She went, she worked the room again. But it takes time, and that was – and she had been on stage for a long time. It was just another place. That goes back to asking for the pay. That room is a hell of a lot different than L.A. or right. a New York room. It's just, it's just another world.
0: So what keeps – you? like you said uh, on this New York trip, you and your wife are working on a new show. Mm-hmm. What, keeps, what keeps the fire burning? To write, the, to write a show? Oh man,
1: I, I you know. Instead of just so,
0: sitting back and swimming in your improv. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I don't know. Uh, well, my family, my, my uh, stepdaughter is that way, my granddaughter is that way, my wife is that way. We like to create, we like to do new things and it's just fun. I cannot even you know. People say, "Well, I'm mean, you know I'm getting close to sixty five. I am going to retire," and the, the thought in my head is always, "And do what? You're going to retire? What are you going to do? Sit in front of a computer monitor, watch television, read a book? I mean, reading books are, is a great thing, but that's a diversion. That is not an occupation. And you go, "Why would you do that? Are you physically?" incapable of doing your job how stupid literally stupid but they think there's a panacea you know you turn 65 that your hair grows gray you don't have to walk anymore you don't have to pick up a telephone
0: just shut it down yeah
1: how stupid (laughs) it's crazy so no there's just something in the family that um, just keeps going I mean, my my daughter, stepdaughter, just uh, got her uh, overall Universal NBC deal renewed. And she's mentors, writers, and come on. There's no retirement. (laughs) It doesn't. So I I can't answer that question for people who really think that there is Mm -hmm. something to do in retirement or there's something worthwhile because you're retired. That's
0: crazy. Well, Mark, uh, thanks for thanks for keep keeping it going and well, uh, and, uh, and keeping it going long enough to to sit down with me. I appreciate it.
1: Well, I appreciate it. This was fun. And I, not many people um, ask me my opinion because there's always a Bud Friedman.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Bud, if you're listening, we'll get you on some. There you go. <laughs> thanks, Mark. Thanks. <laughs> things first.